we want to provide them a little bit of information so that when and if a conversation about zero fare comes up, what are the policy considerations? And that in making those commitments, that is something that they're going to need to manage in the long term if they want to continue to do that. And so that's something that needs to be factored into their budget. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Good to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast, Transit Unplugged, in-depth this week with Kate Matice, who is executive director of the Northern Virginia Transportation Commission, a neighbor to me here in Maryland. Kate, thank you so much for being our guest today on Transit Unplugged. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. And Kate and I were talking, we were, where were we recently? We were at the, um, it was a WTS holiday party, right? And we, we caught up there. Yeah, that was Washington, fun. DC. That's right. Yeah. And I said, Kate, we've got to get you on the show. We've talked about it in the past. So, so glad we can make it work. Uh, today, we want to kind of dig into what your organization does, a little bit about your background. You're in a really unique position there, aren't you, at NVTC, the Northern Virginia Transportation Commission? Indeed, Paul, we are. So, NVTC, we represent the cities and counties in Northern Virginia uh, that have the very strong partnership with the WMATA. Metro system. Um, and we also own the Virginia Railway Express commuter rail and do a lot of things to help our local bus systems. We actually have six local bus systems work together um, and coordinate. And so we are uh, commissioned uh, by the state, but very much like 100% focused on public transit. And where are you located? So um, our offices are located in Arlington, Virginia, and we represent Arlington, Alexandria, Fairfax, Loudoun, the city of Fairfax, and um, the city of Falls Church. And that's one of the highest income areas in the country, right? It is. We are very fortunate at a very strong economy. And I would say a lot of that strong economy is because of the very strong transit network we have. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of activity um, and a lot of economic engine uh, of that whole region. There's a lot of coordinating organizations around the country. As I talk to transit agencies that work on coordinating, some of them are known as metropolitan planning organizations. Other of them have to uh, take on a different role. You're not an MPO, right? You're not, no. In fact, the Washington, D.C. region has a fantastic MPO um, under the Transportation Planning Board of the Washington Metropolitan Council of Governments. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are indeed a, uh, we're founded and set up by the state of Virginia to get Metro started. And so that is the the role that we play in. So uh, let's talk about some of what your um, agency does. Maybe give us some specifics. So you mentioned that you you own and operate the Virginia Railway Express, the VRE, as it's commonly known. And I remember we were working on, when I was in Baltimore five years ago, I see you there, we were working on trying to meet up at Union Station because that's where Mark trains went and all that. So you've got a great commuter rail service. And I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. But what are the other kind of specific things you've done lately? Sure, absolutely. So um, in addition to uh, having a role and responsibility with WMATA, um, and in particular in that space, we manage state aid on behalf of our local jurisdictions. We manage a regional gas tax. Um, and we also appoint the WMATA board members. They sit from Virginia, I should say. They sit mm-hmm. on uh, on NVTC. Um, but we also are involved in um, a, a really innovative program. It's about five years old now where we receive toll revenues um, from several of the express lanes um, in the Washington, D.C. area. We actually run a competitive pro- grant program to fund more transit and other transportation um, options that can serve folks along those corridors. We call that our commuter choice program. 
And then finally, the other thing that we do that I'm really excited about is we do a lot of policy and analytical work to help our local transit systems best sort of leverage, best practices, lessons learned, um, and even other ways that they can look at coordinating and being smart about what they do. Um, So it's a little bit on the softer side, uh, but we do a lot of work in what I'll call sort of the policy research that helps Northern Virginia have strong transit. That's great. So let's talk about um, the tollways for a minute and how that works. Uh, I was just uh, interviewing a fellow this week from New York City about the new congestion charging that they're trying to implement up there. And of course, you know, our good friend um, who that runs the MTA's Transportation Administration, Rich Davey, uh, the bus service there, also talked to us about that. It's a similar thing, right? It's a it's a it's a toll on cars going into a certain area, uh, and then that money goes into transit. How does that work? So I've driven out I-66 any number of times to go to Dulles Airport, and it picks up your tag or your, um, I, I think, or your uh, your, your reader. Easy pass. Yeah, easy yeah. pass in your car. And and then what happens? Tell, and, and also, are you... Is your are your lanes the ones that are based on like time? Certain times of day, it's more expensive than others. Tell us how all that works. That's interesting. Well, sure. And so, in fact, just to, to really clarify, it's the Commonwealth of Virginia um, has made those decisions and actually runs whether directly or three P threes. They run their tolling infrastructure. So, what we have is we have two multi decade agreements to receive a portion of those toll revenues okay. to support transit and other things along those corridors. So we have one agreement for I-66. It was initially, it is about inside the beltway of I-66, um, but we are also receiving some of the revenues from outside of the beltway on 66. We also receive revenues from the 95 and 395 corridor. 395 is the inside the beltway part of 95 in Northern Virginia. Right. Um, so both of those, we have, um, I said, multi-decade agreements where we are receiving toll revenues um, every year, and we run a competitive program to identify um, local transit systems and local transit services that can run more frequent service um, or have better access to metro stations along those corridors or what have you. And to date, we are just under $100 million that we've been able to award. Um, so and you so take that really money, made a difference. You take the money from the tolls that the state of Virginia operates, and you competitively allocate it to companies or agencies that can do do what? <laughs> Is that so? So it's the folks who can compete are our local transit systems and okay. local governments, right? And so what we're able to do are things like help them run more bus service. Wow. So one of the things that's really special about this funding, it's not just capital, it's operating as yes, well. And I've as we said. all know, if you want transit to succeed, you actually need to pay to operate it. And so Thank that's you. something that we have the ability to do. Um, we've also, though, been able to do things like help uh, construct second entrances to metro stations. Um, better access to at park and rides, um, at VRE stations, um, improving some of the access there. And so uh, we've been able to do a number of different things, but the recipients of these are our local transit systems that are serving on those corridors. That's awesome. Now let's talk about VRE for a minute, uh, Virginia Railway Express, which is a commuter railway service from Northern Virginia into Washington, D.C. Uh, we're recording this at the end of uh, January. What's ridership like now versus pre-pandemic and what have you all done to adjust, you know, headways or service offerings to meet the current demands of the hybrid work, three-day work uh, week that's happening in many cities like DC? Look, I'll be perfectly honest. And I know you've probably heard this from many of the commuter rail systems around the country. It is challenging. It absolutely is. Um, We are nowhere near 
the ridership that we had pre-pandemic, things were incredibly strong. But we have very promising, um, we actually were just briefed. We do have a fantastic CEO, Rich Dalton, who runs VRE. Yeah. He comes and briefs my board. Um, you know, we're very actively involved. They've got a great team of folks. So they know a lot more details on this. Uh, but it looks like uh, ridership last year doubled the ridership of the year before. That's, That's fantastic. Good. It's going in the right direction. But one thing that you mentioned, I think, is definitely uh, an area of concern is, is the model of people going and traveling Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, um, and how you run an effective transit system on very fixed schedules that you've negotiated with the rail, right? when you really are seeing a very concentrated three days a week. And that's something that I know that the team at VRE are very mindful of and how they can work it. But when you are, again, dealing with relationships with uh, with freight rail, which vary in both instances, both their Manassas and their Fredericksburg line, um, it is very challenging. You can't just move and change schedule on a dime. That said, they are doing fantastic. It is a wonderful service. I have I am a VRE rider and have been since before I've been on the commission. Um, so they're running a great thing. But the other thing I do want to put a plug in for, and I know you and I talked a little bit about Mark before we went on the air, is there's some really amazing opportunities um, through the Transform Rail in Virginia. And I know you talked to Jen DeBrule just a little bit ago, the director of De- the Department of Rail and Public Transportation. Right. The um, the revolution that's happening, um, the evolution, I should say, of really fantastic rail service in Virginia is just starting. And so I think some major investments are going to make a difference on what VRE can offer. But in the meantime, we do know there's struggles in moving people back um, under a sort of five-day-a-week model. Let's talk about fairing for a minute. Uh, one of the great things that your, your organization led was the possibility to do um, kind of region-wide uh, coordinated uh, regional fare payment system to align with WMATA. Talk to us about that. That's, you know, cities like San Francisco that have 25 transit systems operating in the region or the DC area where you've got at least six or seven going on there. Tell us about what you did and, and how it works. Sure. So this is, you know, a couple decades old now when, when WMATA was moving towards that central what they call it, the smart trip system. Um, and so that's your your fare card system. Uh, one of the things that our local bus systems really wanted to do is understanding their incredibly integrated network. Um, a lot of our bus systems, I, mean, I think 75% of our buses are actually connecting people to Metro Rail. So that's a very integrated network. Um, and so making that integrated fare really was about the customer. Um, and so we worked very closely with the NBTC bus systems that are under our jurisdictions to work with WMATA um, on the the development and launching of the smart trip system. So to fast forward a little bit with the the movement towards um, the smart trip on um, on your uh, mobile devices, that's again that's something where we wanted to make sure the fare readers and all those sorts of things that our bus systems were using would avail- be available to use the same. Tapping, you know, you yes. can tap your Android, you can tap your iPhone um, on a bus, and the same thing would work. And so that was, I mean, I think that's been a very successful, not easy, but yeah. a very successful um, integration of something incredibly complicated. Because I think the other thing that we need to remember in that is um, is also how fair policy works and how fair policy in the backbone of that. So there's uh, a constant relationship, constant conversations uh, between our local bus systems and WMATA on how that works together. That's good. And great work on that, getting that done. I think that regional cooperation, whatever, you know, makes it easier for the customer, uh, the end customer to utilize our services is good. Speaking of making it easier for the customer, let's take this conversation about fares one step further. So uh, we saw recently in the newspaper that the Washington, D.C. City Council voted unanimously 
to take 40 some million dollars out of their budget and give it to WMATA and Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority so that if you step on a bus starting, I think, July 1st, 2023 in Washington, D.C., if it's all finalized, you know, then you would have free uh, zero fare. They don't like to call it free fare because somebody's paying, right? The city's paying for it, zero fare. Then on the other hand, you've got cities across the country and WMATA had just announced Randy, the CEO, had just announced, you know, we're going to have to ramp up fare enforcement. They did a month of telling people about it, and then they started doing fare enforcement, and they and other agencies now are looking at actually structural changes of the gates uh, to make it, you know, less easy to jump over uh, a turnstile or whatever and jump on, and, and the day had lost you know, tens of millions of dollars in, in fare recovery ratio uh, through people jumping the queue, et cetera, and not paying fares all over the country the last 18 months or so. Some people have called it, you know, the summer of love where fares weren't enforced. And, but it seems like that's coming to an end uh, as the pandemic era COVID recovery funds from the federal government starts to dwindle down. People are taking a harder look at their operating dollars and wondering, OK, well, if we don't enforce fares, how are we going to do this? And then some cities are stepping up and even some states uh, and saying, you know, I heard Utah was looking at this as well as Los Angeles and now D.C. And you've done some work in this area, right, Kate? Your group has. That's a long setup for this question. Here's my setup for the question. So you've got these two uh, theories operating right now in our transit industry. One is zero fare and the other is fare enforcement. Uh, you just did some study on zero fares, right? We did. And so, again, with the six different bus systems that are serving Northern Virginia. Um, they obviously all have, while they use the WMATA system as the backbone, they all represent the policies and priorities of those local jurisdictions. They run their own local service. And so we have seen a small number of our bus systems, in particular, um, the Q bus system in the city of Fairfax, as well as DASH, which serves the city of Alexandria. Their city councils made that decision um, to go zero fare. Um, and the other jurisdictions um, were really, I think, really thinking about how that works. Um, and so what we did, and this is something that we do a lot of, is uh, we decided to do a little bit of research and provide some background information because my board members are board members that are sitting on these city councils. So I have 21 board members. They are primarily our county and our um, city officials of those jurisdictions. And so we want to provide them a little bit of information so that when and if a conversation about zero fare comes up, what are the policy considerations? And so what we found is that um, DASH continues and Alexander continues to have a, a strong priority from their city council to continue that fare free. But they do know that fare free is not or zero fare, fare free. Um, you'd be mindful of those terms. Um, but that is a public commitment, a resource commitment to provide those services to the public. Um, and that in making those commitments, that is something that they're going to need to manage in the long term if they want to continue to do that. And so that's something that needs to be factored into their budget. Um, likewise, for the city of Fairfax, they did decide to go fare free and they are making a very conscious decision what it means for their tax base to be using you know, a penny or on their sales tax or whatever to pay for that bus system. The other interesting thing that we threw into this is there are opportunities and I know that um, you know Randy Clark and Wamata are looking at this too. There are opportunities to look at low-income fare passes, um, and so that is actually something that our localities have been looking into: is are there specific funding products that can focus on a targeted group who would most benefit from zero fare? 
Um, and so that's something that, again, but we put out all of these considerations because introducing zero fare, personally, I think it's a fantastic idea, but understanding you do not put that out there without understanding the full financial and other implications that a locality needs to take on. And I think you and I were talking before the recording started, putting something out there to the public and then having to take it away. Yeah. That is a very, very difficult thing. And I don't think in a political environment that we're all in, that is, I mean, putting our local, our elected officials in that spot, let's make sure they're educated beforehand so they know what they're getting into. That's good. That's I think that's excellent at wisdom, to be honest with you, Kate. Great wisdom on that. I'm actually planning on... Um, as you and I were talking about, I host uh, an executive summit as part of our company's Think Transit conference every year. And I think I'm going to do a debate uh, between both sides, the zero fare side versus fare enforcement. Maybe you could be the moderator because you see both sides of it. But uh, I think I just ran a poll actually on that on LinkedIn with 5,000 people and uh, 85% wanted, 85% of the respondents said, yes, they would love to see a debate like that. So um uh, I think it's important. You know, we came out of this pandemic, right? The title of my book is Conversations on Equity and Inclusion in Public Transportation. And this zero fare is really part of the discussion that came out of that, that we want to make sure that people that need transit the most, but maybe can't afford it now that we're enforcing fares, that we still give them a helping hand. Uh, and uh, and so I think that's why the discussion is continuing. Um, but then governments have to look at transit more like a public uh, service like parks and schools, uh, streets, where you don't get charged to use it. It's just a, a service that's offered. And that is a shift in the um, in the way it's viewed, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're taking your head Absolutely. and saying, it's now not a user fee anymore. Like, you know, like I like to p- golf at a public golf course in my county. There's a user fee and we expect the golf course to basically cover its own operating cost. I used to be a county commissioner. We want it to be, you know, cover your own costs. We'll put in some capital dollars every now and then maybe to, you know, redo the greens and all, but the day-to-day cost needs to be covered. And that's the way transit has largely been viewed, but it's yeah. shifting now a little bit, isn't it, Kate? No, I absolutely, I think that this has really opened up um, that discussion. Um, and so this is the time when, you know, the local elected officials can can really identify, is this the time and place and the opportunity to be looking at where resources can be put towards providing that? Um, but I do want to say, and we, you know, look, we started this conversation talking about um, the, the economic strength of Northern Virginia. And so that is also mindful too, is that we do have a lot of people who do have the ability to pay directly for transit, um, as well as those who do receive benefits from their employment, particularly with the federal government. Right. And so those are really important revenue streams that we don't want to lose. So um, insofar that we've got localities who do want to provide fare-free, fantastic. For those who want to identify income, low-income products, that is just another way to do it. Again, there's, as you know, there's not one-size-fits-all transit, and that is exactly what we see in Northern Virginia. Yep. Well, and you you're in a great position there, kind of uh, overseeing this this um, uh, I don't want to call it a middleman, but I don't know what your organization. I'm trying to think of a you know a, an analogy for it, but you're in between and helping to coordinate all this. So I mean, you've looked at things like you're coordinating emergency response actions. You've run regional transit marketing campaigns. You're working on quantifying the economic value of the transit network to the state. So you're doing all kinds of regional things and. The, one of the ones I want to uh, 
kind of go down the the um, a discussion trail with a little bit further is this idea of uh, a zero emission bus strategic plan. Uh, a lot of transit systems across the country are trying to figure out how do we make this work. Uh, I just interviewed uh, Kirk Conrad, who heads up uh, Stark Transit Agency in Ohio, and they they're doubling down on hydrogen and CNG. Other agencies are looking at electric. Tell me about what you all are doing there in Northern Virginia. We'll continue Paul's conversation with Kate Matthijs in a moment. But first, Mike's Minute with Mike Bismeyer. Hi, this is Mike Bismeyer, Regional Sales Director for Terra, and this is Mike's Minute, where we talk about leadership, mentorship, and kindness with the hopes that it'll inspire you to pay it forward. As I continue to discuss these traits, and Paul continues his heightened focus on leadership and leadership development, it was great last week to hear the advice of one of his guests, Larnzell Harper, in regards to mentorship specifically. Lorenzell's advice on leadership development was to seek a mentor, noting that mentors can help show, advise, and guide both in career and personal life. I have often stated over the past years that in our industry, we are blessed with the many conferences, forums, and webinars where our peers are excited to share their experiences, knowledge, and best practices that have made both them and their agencies successful. During this journey, specifically seeking out a mentor should be a priority. The multiple amazing speakers articulately relaying their messages that I have been fortunate to see over my years in transit, have had an amazing impact on me as I learn something every time I hear someone share that adds tremendous value to my continued growth. Transit Unplugged is also no exception, as Paul continues to bring us insight from our leaders, which is evident in every episode, and you can hear the passion in the guests like Kate Matice today as they share their insights. Don't undervalue what you may have to share either. If your company has a mentorship program, get involved either as a mentor or mentee. It's both rewarding and empowering. We've all had someone in our career that has made an impact and helped us progress. And sometimes it can be as easy as someone that's allowing you to be comfortable making your decision, voicing your input, and then providing good supportive feedback as you work through the outcomes. Leadership, mentorship, and kindness, they do align. Kindness is cool. Thanks for listening. Electric, tell me about what you all are doing there in Northern Virginia. Sure, absolutely. And so, um, and again, we've got one of our localities um, is, is, I would say, somewhat on the bleeding edge uh, with Dash and Alexandria. They have been moving to an electrified uh, fleet. Um, and so one of the things that our MPO um, set some very bold targets uh, for climate change. And so our localities and our elected officials in particular really have um, some bold visions and bold things that they want to do um, to reduce greenhouse gases. And a part of that is then what, how does that play in the transportation space? Um, and so what we are hearing is that there was a great deal of urgency with moving to zero emission for our bus systems. And likewise, as we know, um, and maybe some of our systems I think had been burned with some quick adoption of technologies that did not necessarily work out. Um, and so again, what we, so that's that that's one part of this, a little bit of history and a, and a concern of things that didn't work out so well. The other side of it was recognizing that um, obviously the infrastructure law, massive investments under the low-no program, right? Um, and our localities actually have not played that much in the federal space. They're actually not federalized bus systems, by the way. Um, they do not take any federal formula funding. Oh, that's right. Um, but knowing yeah. that there are some opportunities. Um, and so we wanted, again, help our localities be smart when they think about these things. We have a very integrated network. We have a lot of bus systems that are serving people at individual stations, whether it be things like the Pentagon or at metro stations or what have you. So we have the interest in going zero emission 
We have the opportunity where folks are coming together. And never mind things like joint procurements, joint training perhaps for employment, for staff, right? For the technical staff who are working on zero emission. And so what we decided to do was, again, with our, our endorsement for our board, was to do a strategic plan. How should Northern Virginia play in this space? Where are there opportunities where there can be shared procurements, infrastructure, training, I don't even know, but would they want to do a joint application for federal grant? Um, and so what we wanted to do was put them in a really good spot so that, indeed, the political pressures of do zero emission right now didn't mean, to mean that we were going to be hastily buying infrastructure that might either not be the right thing to do or maybe a little bit um, ahead of its time and have some technical problems. So we're just helping provide a roadmap. Again, our localities are going to decide what they want to do, but we want to help them to be smart because we want this to succeed. This is really important to go to zero emission. But as we all know, it is better to have really good, reliable buses on the road than broken down zero emission buses. And that's what it really matters is how the customers are being served by transit, regardless of sort of what technology is behind that. There's so many complex issues that are impacting public transit now. Uh, you've got such a great background to help lead our nation's capital area. Tell us a little bit about the background, your years at FTA, et cetera. Sure. And so, yeah, I've been at the, at, at MBTC for about eight years now. Um, and I got to tell you, it is a ton of fun being in, in regional government and working with all of these local governments. Um, but before that, indeed, yes, I was at the Federal Transit Administration. Um, and I spent my um, 13-year career there in the Office of Budget and Policy. So I had the opportunity to, to even do things like work on, this is when I get myself dated, I worked on Safety Lou. Um, I oh, had the opportunity yeah. uh, not soon after, not long after I joined FTA um, to go and work um, up on Capitol Hill. Uh, and I worked in the Senate Banking Committee um, on as, as sort of an FTA fellow, uh, helping draft some of the legislation associated with Safety Lou. Uh, then came back, helped implement that. Um, and then sort of worked through, I was the director of policy development for a little while. Um, and then uh, for the three years preceding my departure, I was the deputy associate administrator for budget and policy. So under that, I had the opportunity to go look at everything from the uh, initiation of the transit asset management um, activities um, and those regulations, um, as well as um, FTA's strategic plan, their budget, um, and again, all of the policy work. The other thing that I... I always had a little toe in was working on the capital investment grants program. And so when I was at FTA, I did a lot of more on the policy side, working very closely with the Office of Planning and Environment um, on what was at that time called the New Starts program. Um, and so um, I got a chance to really dabble in a lot of things. Um, one thing I'll say about myself, I am not, I am very much a generalist and not a specialist. And I've been so fortunate both at FTA and then over here at NBTC to be able to do a whole range of different things in the public transit space. Well, you're clearly the right person for that job there. And I know you're doing, I'm, because I'm local, I get to see the work you're doing. And it's just wonderful. Uh, the coordination and the improvement of services in the area. Uh, thank you for the work you do for our industry, especially in our region, in the nation's capital region, Kate. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transit Unplugged In-Depth with our special guest, Kate Matice, Executive Director of the Northern Virginia Transportation Commission. Now, next week on Transit Unplugged News and Views, we have two special guests, Stacey Matlin, Vice President of Innovation at Partnership for NYC, 
and Eulis Cleckley, CEO of Miami-Dade County Department of Transportation and Public Works. And don't forget, head over to transitunplugged.com. Sign up for the newsletter. So you're always in the loop with whatever is going on with the show. And if you would like to reach out to us, email us at info at So until next week, ride safe and ride happy. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Transit Unplugged, the podcast. How would you like to see behind-the-scenes footage of the agencies that Paul visits? Then be sure to check out the new Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube, where transit evangelist Paul Comfort dives into the culture, the food, and the transit of major cities around the world. You'll see the operations control centers, how maintenance shops work, and the latest innovations taking place at agencies around the globe as we work together to improve the lives of our transit riders and our communities. Be sure to subscribe to Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube or at transitunplugged.com.